We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught in human, by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. <clears throat> I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you, were, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? I think I'm told, uh, shared this story several years ago. So many of you are new here, it's worth telling again. that It is a true story, and it happened. <clears throat> we were in Oklahoma City one night, and uh, it was uh, about dinner time, and we decided we'd stop at a cafeteria and eat our dinner. And we'd heard about a cafeteria at, at Penn Square Mall, and we decided we'd go there and eat, and we found it. And it was storming, it was raining and, and lightning, and, and so we were kind of in a hurry. Now, if you're looking for a cafeteria at a mall, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be logical that you would go inside to look for it inside the mall? Right, right, okay. Now the problem with this cafeteria was that it was attached to the mall on the outside. You couldn't get to it from the inside. We didn't know that. So we parked our car and we went rushing up there, running up to the entrance. And every cafeteria is uh, you know, located by an entrance of the mall. And when we got inside, it was obvious that it wasn't by this entrance. So we started walking around looking for that cafeteria. And we walked and we looked, and we, I looked like one of those old guys, you know, on tennis shoes that walks around in the malls, you know how that looks. And we walked and we looked, and finally Margaret said, why don't you ask somebody? Well, I'm not about to ask anybody. I look like a fool, you know, so I just kept walking and kept looking. And finally we came to one of these large maps. We decided we'd check out the map, and we walked up to this map, you know how they are in the mall, and, and the first thing that kind of leaped out there was this great big red X in bold print. It said, you are here. Now, I was glad to learn that because I didn't have a slightest idea where I was. And I discovered that you'll never be able to get where you want to go until you find out where you are. 
I mean, a map is really useless in getting where you want to be if you don't know where you are. You could look at a map and find your destination and you could stare at that map for a day and never discover how to get there until you first find out where you are. Now that's true spiritually. There are some people who, are, who have an idea where they want to go. They have a standard and they have a goal in the Christian life. It might be Christ-likeness. It might be conformed to the image of His Son. And they have a standard. That's not the... The big question, you know, where do you want to go as a Christian? The first question is, where are you now? As a matter of fact, that was the first question God ever asked man. Adam, where are you? And there are some people who can't find, where, find out how to get where they want to be in, as a Christian because they don't know where they are spiritually. A lady came to me while I was pastoring in Tulia, Texas, and she came to my office and said, Pastor, I want to be saved. I can't live another day as a lost person. I said, well, wonderful. And I was so excited. When I got to talking to her, I found out she'd been baptized five times. She'd gone forward numerous times and had prayed to receive Christ more times than that. Now, she wasn't able to get where she wanted to be because she didn't understand she was already there looking for some kind of emotional experience which you never, may never have. On the other hand, there are some people who are trying to live the victorious Christian life who are spiritually dead. And while they're seeking for the victorious life that they read about, they've never had life to begin with. It's amazing what getting saved will do for your spiritual life. And so Paul understands that and he's writing to this church in Corinth to help these folks get located. There's a great deal of confusion going on in the church at Corinth. And so he's helping them to find where they are. And he, he lists four specific kinds of people. And he says, in essence, you are here, and you are here, and you are here, etc. And those four specific kinds of people are in this congregation this morning. And I want to I mention two of them this morning, and then we'll deal with the other two next week. The first group he mentions, you are here, the first group, is what he called the natural man. The natural man. Now, that's not the first time, the only time that's found in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in the little epistle of Jude, one chapter... Verse 19, Jude is writing to, the, to, to people within the church and he says that there are people within this church, he calls them worldly-minded in the New American Standard. It's the same word that's used here for natural. Natural men who do not have the Spirit of God. We'd call them lost people. But the natural man is a term that refers to an animal-like existence. Unregenerate without the Holy Spirit indwelling one, who does, he just does what comes naturally. And that may be the most frightening thing we could say about it at all. Now nobody would, you know, would ever call Mike Wallace a religious man by any stretch of the imagination. But not long before his death, he did a story on Adolf Eichmann this man who was one of the principal architects of the Holocaust 
in, in light of this uh, uh, anniversary of the Holocaust. And he um, asked a question in this program like this. He said, how is it possible for a man to do what Eichmann did? Was he a madman? Was he a monster? And then he asked this question. He said, or was he doing what is normal? And he told about, he had a clip of the 1961 Nuremberg trials and in which a man by the name of Denur was brought into the courtroom for the first time he, to look at Adolf Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann and testify against him. He had survived the Holocaust. It had been 18 years since he had seen him. And when he walked into the courtroom and this cameras were whirling, this man looked at Eichmann and he began to weep uncontrollably and he collapsed like a heap while the judge was pounding his gavel to call for order in the courtroom. Now, was Denur overcome by horror or fear or memories? No. As he explained to Mike Wallace later this, he said, when I saw him for the first time, all of a sudden it dawned on me that he wasn't this godlike man who sentenced millions to death, even my own family. What horrified me was that I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he is. And then Mike Wallace made this profound theological statement. He didn't know it, but he did. He said, Adolf Eichmann is in all of us. And 3,500 years of re recorded history confirm that fact. Let me tell you something. The reason why we're in a, revolution, a violent revolutionary time of sexual exploitation and crime, you can attribute that to the drug problem if you want to. That's just symptomatic of the drug problem. The problem is that the natural man does what isn't, what comes naturally, and that's the most frightening thing of all, for the Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. That is the natural man's heart. Now Paul says that two things about the natural man in this text. Now watch this. He says that he is bound by the material. He's bound by the material. It means that he doesn't have the capacity to live on any higher plane than the natural and physical world. It means that he is limited to the physical senses. It means that he doesn't have the capacity to comprehend and communicate with God. It means that he appreciates animal-like existence. And all he needs is food and drink and a warm place to stay. It means that he has a standard that's the world's standard. The world's heroes are his heroes. A few years ago, I was out at the Southern Baptist, I was in Las Vegas, but it was at the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> and Thomas Hearn and Sugar Ray Leonard were having that big match while we were out there. And so it was, it was on Tuesday night, and, and they were having it over Caesar's Palace. And so we decided we'd go over there and look at the crowd. And these guys came driving up, and, and there were just thousands of people look, waiting out at the entrance of Caesar's Palace to get a glimpse of these movie stars and heroes of the world. And some of them were literally gangsters and mobsters. Literally. 
And people were just adoring them. And while I was standing there, true story, I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? Adoring these heroes of the world, these gangsters, these mobsters. Natural man has a standard like that. His heroes are the world's heroes. He goes to the same place the world goes to get his kicks and have his fun. He, he, he reads the same books and goes to the same movies. The world standard is his standard. And he has the same value system that the world has. And he has the same modus operandi. He operates the same way as the world operates. He has his business the same way the world does it. And he has a world's way of thinking. It's the only way he can think. And so I heard this, I listened to this baseball player they interviewed the other day and he's going on free agency and he's leaving this club and somebody asked him why so oh, I love it here my family's here etc he said I got to go where I can make the most money now there's not anything wrong with that I think that's that's legitimate reason to do things is to you know although you'd be kind of horrified if I came in here tonight and said I'm going to leave this church because I got to go where I can make more money it is a bad thing when that becomes the rule of life see. And so I heard this politician say recently, we got to get this country back on the road to prosperity. Nobody's ever said we need to get this country back on the road to its moral values and the spiritual foundation on which it rested 200 years ago. Nobody ever says that because the world standard is different from that. And so Clovis Chapel, a preacher of another century, told about the time two paddle ships left Memphis and headed down the mighty Mississippi. And a crewman on one of those ships called across to the other paddle ship and was making fun of how slow they were moving. And so without, I mean, immediately a race began. And they were shoveling coal into the furnace and they were racing, plunging through the deep south down the mighty Mississippi. One of the paddle boats began to drift a little behind. They were running out of coal, had plenty of coal for the trip, but not enough for a race. When one enterprising young crewman found he could take some of the cargo and chunk it in there and the flame would flare up. And so all of a sudden the crew was just chunking the cargo in the furnace and the, the result was they won the race, but they lost their cargo. And there's certain cargo that you and I have been given in this life, our marriage, our children, our own spiritual lives. And the natural man is willing to sacrifice the cargo for the sake of the race. It's his only standard of living. He's bound by the material world. Second, Paul says that he's blinded by the thing, blinded of the things of God, blinded to the spiritual world. And this is how Paul put it in another place. He said, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever lest he see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Daniel Amsler, who was associate pastor at Chuck Swindoll's church in California, said one night he came in late and he went in and turned on the television to get the evening news and they were doing a remote of a lunar eclipse. He'd forgotten that the moon was supposed to, there'd be, supposed to be an eclipse of the moon that night. And they were doing a, a remote of the, of the lunar eclipse and he thought, well, I'll get me a tumbler of tea and I'll go out on the front porch and I'll unwind and... And look at that. He said, about the time I got out on the front porch, my neighbor was coming out of his door across the street, and he had an old Carver in the driveway. He was, he was rebuilding. 
He said he crawled under that old Carver and he was banging around under there and he said he'd come out occasionally and get another wrench, never look up. And, and he'd, sometime he'd crack his knuckles and let out an expletive. And he said, while, he, while I was looking at this thing going on in the heavens, he's underneath that Carver banging around under there. He said after about 30 minutes, he crawled out from under the old car and went inside, never once looking up. He said this, listen to me. He said, while this great phenomenon was taking place in the heavens, the only thing that guy saw was the underbelly of an old carver, blinded by the spiritual, is the nat blinded to the spiritual, is the natural man. Now that means two things. Now watch this. It means that he doesn't have an appreciation for the things of God. No appreciation for the things of God. Now there are some things about the church he appreciates. He can appreciate a good offering because he understands budgets. He knows deficit spending and cash flow. He understands that. And he appreciates a good sermon if it's just 20 minutes long. I don't suppose there is one that's longer than that. <laughs> and, and he appreciates a good sermon. And he'll tell the preacher, Preacher, if you'll give me a 20-minute sermon and don't get on me too bad, I'll come to your church every time I don't have something better to do. And he appreciates a good anthem like the choir sang or a message in song like Tony sang. He appreciates those kinds of things. But when you talk to him about meeting God, he doesn't understand. He doesn't appreciate that. And when you talk about turning the other cheek and giving the coat as well as the cloak and, and walking the second mile, he has no appreciation of that. In fact, the scripture says that he does not accept those things. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It means welcome. It's not a welcome sight to him. The things of God are not a welcome sight. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the natural man, the things of God are foolishness, stupid. There's nothing any more stupid to the natural man than to talk to him about living by faith. Than to say to him, take up your cross and deny yourself and give your life for God. Nothing any more stupid to the natural man than that. The guy was talking to me not long ago about his son. This man was a businessman. He had a, he had a business he wanted to leave to his son when he got ready to retire. His son was called to preach. And I told him, I said, look, your son is turning his back on this because he hears the call of God to the ministry. And he said, I don't know if there's anything any more stupid than my, that my son has ever done than that. And he's done a lot of stupid things. He has no appreciation for the things of God. And he has no conviction about the things of God. Conviction, I mean by that, I mean understanding. The scripture says, Paul says that he cannot understand those things. You tell him you need to live for God. You, he, he says, I don't understand the Bible. That's true, he can't. How many times have you seen that little phrase in Scripture, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus is talking to people like I'm talking to you, and he says to them, if you have ears, listen to me. And, and the guy feels up here and he says, yeah, I've got ears, what's he talking about? Everybody does, don't they? He's not talking about physical ears. He's talking about the ears of the Spirit. He's talking about eyes of the heart. He's talking about those things that are only grasped by a man who knows God. Now there's a program going on in this room this morning. It's called the NFL Today. You didn't know the NFL Today was going on in this room. You can't see it. 
because you don't have a receiver to see it. But I guarantee you, if I brought a television in here and plugged it into the wall, immediately you'd see the NFL today on Channel 9 because the program is here if you've got the right receiver to receive it. Let me tell you something. You can't receive the things of God. They're not a welcome sight. You don't understand them if you're a natural man. You say, well, does that mean that, you know, is that, is that a hopeless situation? No, it's not. A, well, what should we do? Well, you respond to the gospel by faith and something supernatural happens on the inside of you. It's called a new birth and God gives you ears with which to hear that which you cannot hear with ease and He gives you eyes to see that which you cannot see with ease and something happens on the inside of you that's supernatural. It's called a new birth. Now it's interesting that when Jesus called men to follow Him, He didn't call them to understand Him or explain Him. He called them to follow Him. And when they made that commitment to follow Him, they began to love and appreciate Him and understand Him. Alright? The natural man. I want to hurry to the second. We'll be out here on 20 minutes. Maybe not, but huh, 25, yeah. Spiritual, spiritual man. Now he talks about the spiritual man in verse 15, 16, verses 15 and 16. Now, if you were to fill in the blank what the spiritual man is, and you filled in the blank, probably most of you would describe some little white-haired saintly person, some godly man that prays, and when he prays you just get touched and that kind of stuff. It, does, it is significant and it is interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he describes a spiritual man in verse 15, he uses the term, he appraises all things. Now I would have never put that there as my definition of a spiritual man. He appraises all things. He discerns all things. He makes proper judgments. Now what he's describing there really is that a spiritual man is a mature man. Can you write that beside that? A spiritual man is a mature man. Now I want you to zero in, as Wayne Bristow said last week, I want you to lock in here with me now because I want to give what I believe are four or five implications of spiritual maturity from this passage. The first is that a mature person, a mature Christian, a spiritual man desires to be holy more than he desires to be happy. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he understands that he will not always be happy. And there will be times when he'll go through some experiences in life that are so painful and unhappy, but he accepts them and he does not resent them because he believes that God is using them to perfect him in holiness. There is a legend that Siddhartha went one day up to the top of a mountain to, to visit a wise man to ask a question, how can I attain holiness? And this wise sage talked to him about holiness and talked to him about God. And after a while, the wise man said, let me ask, answer your question like this. He said, come with me and let's take a little walk. And they walked down beside a beautiful lake and they just kind of sat down there and kicked back and they 
we're talking, and all of a sudden, just out of the blue, this wise man grabbed him by the back of the neck and plunged his head down in the water, and in a vice-like grip, he held him there. And he was struggling and gasping. He knew he was going to die. And he was thinking to himself, what is happening here? This man's gone crazy. And as he tried to struggle and get away, he just kept his head under the water until finally he said, I'm going to die. I might as well. And just at the time he was ready to die, he pulled his head out of the water. And it took him about 30 minutes to get the water out of his lungs. And he was spitting and sputtering. And when he finally got to the point he could protest, he started to protest and the old sage held up his hand and said, when you desire to be holy as much as you desire that last breath, you'll be holy. Now listen to me. When you desire God more than you desire your next breath, you have come to the place where you are mature. Second, he's the kind of man who wants God to be honored through his life, even though it means that he will suffer temporary dishonor or loss. Now he came out of the mountains and down upon the desert like a whirlwind in the sand, did John the Baptist. And so great was his preaching that people fled from him and some attracted to him. And he was a man on whom the Spirit of God rested. Let me ask you, when was John the Baptist, when did he give greatest evidence of the Spirit of God upon his life? Was it when he preached those great sermons, not on your life? It's when he pointed to Jesus and said, He must increase and I must decrease. And he lost honor, and he lost position, and he lost it all, even his head. But God was glorified in Messiah. All right, third. He's a kind of person who views things as God views them. He places the same value on things that God places on things. That's what he talks about here when he talks about the mind of Christ. He, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a person who is able to appraise and see what is really valuable, what is really important, what is really of value. My mother and daddy used to Always, you know, they're always asking me about the people I ran around with. Now, I was somewhat intimidated by that and irritated by it. They were all at, you know, who'd you, who are you with today? Who are you at? You know, who's your friend? All that kind of stuff. And, 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 and I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. Listen to me. They knew that the people I ran around with and with whom I had some kind of personal relationship intimate relationships, close friends. They knew that I would eventually adapt the way they thought. And they want to know who I was running around with because they knew that I would eventually begin to adapt their thinking and their attitude. Now a spiritual man is a person who has such a 
relationship with God. And he has such a, 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 a intimate uh, dialogue with God that he begins to think like God. And he begins to view things as Christ viewed them. He has the mind of Christ, he said. That's the mature man. Fourth, he desires to see others advance even at his own expense. And, and he's not envious or jealous. And so he talks about that in chapter 3. He talks about these jealousies that existed in that confused church. And the spiritual man is not jealous or envious when others advance. Nietzsche, the German existentialist, said that at the core of a man's psyche is the will to power. And what he was saying is that everybody at the core of their psyche wants to dominate and control. No wonder. No wonder they didn't understand when Jesus said, turn the other cheek. No wonder they sneered when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And no wonder the person reads his Bible and closes it when he gets to the place where Paul said, think more of other people's needs than your own. We have the will to dominate unless we're the spiritual man. One last thought. He makes eternity judgments instead of time judgments. And by that I mean, watch this kids, he makes choices. He has, he makes decisions. He passes judgment on the basis, not on the basis of the present moment, but on the basis of an eternity that looms beyond him. Chuck Colson has a great book called Who Speaks for God? He told about on Thanksgiving, a few years ago, they went into the Indiana State Prison and, and on death row they visited. And he said he had a lot of guys that he had never met before, just guys, volunteer laymen who came and met him at the Indiana State Prison. And so he said, I didn't know some of them, but I knew they were all Christians and they were all committed to this ministry. And so he said, we spent an afternoon in the Indiana State Prison death row. He said, the time came for us to leave and we all left and we got outside the prison walls, we discovered that one man was missing. He said, I got the warden and he said, I was somewhat irritated and, and angry and he said, we went back down death row and we found this man sitting in the cell of a man who was going to be executed in one month. And he said, the warden opened the door and he said, I went in and I, he said, I was irritated and angry. And I said to the man, don't you know, sir, that you could jeopardize this prison ministry by not, by not following the rules and obeying the rules? He said, why didn't you come at the appointed time and leave? And he said, that man sitting on a couch, sitting on the cot with this prisoner on death row said, Sir, I'd like to introduce my friend. This is James Brewer. And my name is Judge Clements. He said, I sentenced this man to death. And since that time, we both have become Christians. And we both have a lot of confessing and forgiving to do. In light of the fact that everybody in this room today is under the sentence of death. What choices are you making?
The spiritual man is the man who makes his choice and he appraises life and and he values life on the basis of the fact that in the next moment he'll live with that choice for the rest of eternity. Now in this room today, there are those of you who are doing what comes naturally. I invite you in a moment to get up out of your seat and come. Obey Christ. Respond to the gospel. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender the control of your life to Him. And something supernatural will occur here. And I may be speaking to some who would say, Pastor, I am a Christian, but I'm not a spiritual person. I'm not a mature one. And everything you described is the farthest from me that you could get. But I want to begin to live my life as God saved me to live it. After we've had prayer, we'll invite you to come. Someone came this morning to place their life in the church in the early service. You may have come during the crusade. You may have made decision in Bible school. You want to come and make those decisions here publicly after we've had prayer. Would you join me, Father? I pray that we will do what comes supernaturally. That is, by faith we'll lay claim to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for every, every lost person here and every Christian who is not what he ought to be, that your will will be done, your name honored and glorified for Jesus' sake. Now as we stand to our feet, we invite you to come. Step out and come right away.